This is the EWN Podcast Network. Everybody wants to win. It's how we define success in life. Michelle Nagel explores resilience, teaches you happiness hacks, and provides tools for building positive relationships, all of which are essential for winning at the game of life. Join us to learn how to roar. Welcome to Roar to Win. This is Michelle Nagel, and today I'm really excited. Our guest is Rochelle Marie Lawson. She's a registered nurse, Ayurvedic health practitioner, holistic health and wellness consultant, international best-selling author, speaker, and radio show hostess. She's the president of Blissful Living for You, which was founded to improve wellness, wisdom, and wealth by utilizing ancient holistic principles that only lead to success. Rochelle Marie's energy, guidance, wisdom, and enthusiasm have helped thousands of people to improve their well-being and to program their mind for success while growing their overall wealth holistically and naturally so that they could live the life of their dreams. So welcome, Rochelle. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad that we get to have this opportunity. It's too bad we weren't uh, recording our conversation that we had the other day because I just am so excited by all of the things that you do and have done and um, all of the um, barriers you have broken. Would you like to share some of those with us? Yes. Well, there's been many, but I can go (laughs) back to the age of 10, but I won't do that. Um, So um, I think basically I've always been the type of girl that's always been surrounded by boys. My whole entire family, I'm the only girl. Um, all my friends were boys growing up. I, I just kind of dealt with the boys. And so it just would seem natural that some of the things that I would do would be playing in the boys' playground as I got out and got into the business world. So a long time ago, uh, back in 1989, I started a telecommunications installation company. And it um, definitely was a male it's a male dominated industry. It's a subcontractor for uh, the construction industry. And when I started it, I looked like I was 12 um, <laughs> and I uh, was definitely told by the, the players in the game that, you know, I'm, I'm a female, I'm playing in their, their world. They weren't going to let me be successful. And um, it just, uh, just lit the fire under me to be even um more successful so it just kind of it's just kind of been my path and with that when someone tells me that they're not gonna let me do something or they're gonna prevent me from doing something then lo and behold all my accelerators get burning and I uh, step into it and prove them wrong and it goes back before then I I shared a story with you where when I got out of college I was married and went to engineering school with my husband because I was so in love and, you know, wanted to spend every waking moment with him, right? (laughs) And so we went to um, engineering school and got an engineering degree. And then when I got out of school, being in the Silicon Valley, I just expected that it would be easy for me to get a job as an electrical engineer. I mean, I'm, you know, Silicon Valley, it's it's pre-computer really, you know, PC personal computer days and all that kind of stuff. So I thought slam dunk, you know. However, I interviewed with every major electronics firm in Silicon Valley, the big boys, IBM, Hewlett Packard, Intel, uh, FMC, the federal defense contractor, all these guys. And I would do the interview and um, they would always say, oh, 
we would love to have you. You, you passed everything with fine colors. However, um, you know, you're going to be working around guys that are around your father's age probably. And we want to, we just want to make sure that we make, we don't make them uncomfortable. We want them to be comfortable. And so I would never get a call back from any of them, even though they tell me I did fly, I passed with flying colors and, you know, I was this fabulous person, but you know, because I looked like I was 12 and I was going to be working around people that were my dad's age, I never got a call back. So that forced me to just really, you know, start my own company and lift the field. And I'm like, okay, you guys don't want me to play your playground. Well, I'm going to make my own playground. I'm going to make my own rules and I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to set the trend for other women coming behind me because we women can play in the boys' playground. I just think you're a little scared that we might play a little better than you and you don't want us to show you up. So there. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you end up doing? Because they wouldn't let you play in their companies. What did you end up doing? So I ended up having, like I said, started the telecommunications company along with um, being a registered nurse and playing in the, the world of emergency room trauma medicine. But I started the telecommunications company and not only was my company successful, it's still successful today. It's been around for 30 years. It's still successful. But I took that company and we made the top 50 women on business list in Silicon Valley for many consecutive years. So to all those guys that told me I couldn't play in their playground and that they were not gonna let me be successful and that they were gonna do everything in their power so that I would not succeed because they didn't want a woman in their playground, guess what? I'm still around, <laughs> I'm still successful, and some of them have fallen by the wayside. So there you have it. Absolutely, so where did you get that kind of drive and determination from? I think it started, I know it started when I was a little girl. So I was a very little skinny, girly girl. I mean, I was very skinny. Um, I wouldn't say petite, but I was really skinny. Uh, My diet was candy. That's what I love to eat, candy. Food, no way. Candy, all day. (laughs) I was a very skinny little girl, but I always played with boys because that's all that was in my neighborhood. That's all that was in my family. And I didn't like to be called back then I'm you know I'm not politically correct but I didn't like to be called a sissy and I didn't want to lose and I didn't want to lose because I was a girl or I was skinny or and I didn't want people to be soft you know the boys to be soft with me I wanted them to be tough because I wanted to prove to them even though I was this little skinny girl that I was as tough as they were and so I think I think it started then when I was 10 years old I went out um I was playing baseball I'll play football, baseball, that stuff with the boys. But I went and tried out for baseball with two of my friends who were boys. We rode our bikes. We tried out for Major League Baseball in a baseball league. Well, let me put it this way. I went to try out. When I got there, it was all boys. And I was told I couldn't try out because I was a girl. Mm. And so um, I was like, okay, you know, I, I felt really bad. You know, I was, I was a little girl. I was 10. I felt really bad. Um, because the only reason why they wouldn't let me try out was because I was a girl. So, you know, I, I kind of just was watching my friends as they tried out. And then I started playing catch with some boys on the other side and, um, of where they were doing the tryouts. And then, you know, we were playing and practicing and stuff, started hitting the ball and, um, and one of the coaches took notice cause I actually was, I was really good. Um, mm-hmm. but one of the coaches took notice. And so when I walked back over to get, you know, wait for my friends, they were like huddled. I remember them being huddled and they're like, 
um, I guess they felt bad because they had hurt my feelings, but I didn't cry or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, they uh, offered me to try out. So I'm like, okay, it was my opportunity, right? Right. So I tried out. And it was so funny because the, the coach, he, he went halfway between the pitcher's mound and home plate, and he kind of tossed the ball underhanded to me. Like, <laughs> and I tagged that ball. So then he, they, you know, then he stepped back a few steps and he did it a little again, a little bit, you know, faster this time. And I tagged it. Next thing I know, he's at the pitcher's mound and, you know, he's throwing the ball overhand and I'm just tagging it left and right. And he's looking at me like, how can this skinny little girl whose arms are as big as her, you know, tiny, tiny little girl be tagging this ball? I mean, I was hitting it everywhere. And so I ended up making the baseball team. I ended up being a starter for my team. I ended up um, going to the All-Stars, which was huge because I was the only girl in the whole entire league in the city, probably in the, that area, in uh, Silicon Valley. And um, I went to All-Stars two years, but I, um, I really was a little trendsetter back then because people would come from all over the place to watch this little girl play baseball. And I was I the little it. girl that they were watching and I didn't even know it. I was just out there having fun. And years later, someone, one of my teachers in high school was like, Hey, did you play blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, yeah. And, and, and then she told me the story of how all these people were coming and I was just playing. I didn't even know I was just having fun with my friends. So I guess it started back then. And I'm the type of girl that if you tell me no, you know, and if it's something I really want to do, I'm going to make a way and I'm going to make a way for you to realize that you should have told me yes. <laughs> yeah. So no is a dangerous word for you. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I've often felt that too. It's like when somebody tells me no, I just, I, I feel myself go really still and I say, you watch me. Mm -hmm. And then I just, and it's, it's a challenge. And so it's really pretty amazing. So um, I appreciate you sharing that story. And so now the question is on how on earth did you go from a skinny little kid that only ate candy to owning a wellness <laughs> company? <laughs> so I know it's, it's so odd. I know. But so here's, here's the thing. When I was that little skinny little kid eating candy all the time, I think the candy was, um, how can I say, you know how we, you know, people find, comfort in food. Oh yeah. Comfort in candy. Mm -hmm. And so when I was eight years old, I had a series of things, four very traumatic things that happened to me that set the precursor for me to have a medical condition that I suffered for with for 17 years. Oh wow. Um, and was not able to be diagnosed by the medical community. Went to um, many doctors, had my first pelvic examination as a child at nine. And I remember the doctor saying he didn't have anything small enough to examine me. Oh. And so, um, as I got older, the symptoms got worse, the prescriptions came, I wouldn't take them cause they didn't work, but I started doing stuff like not eating fast food when I was a teenager and meditating cause I was always full of fire. I, I didn't know what it was, but you know, I real as I grew up, I realized that's what I was doing. Lo and behold, as I mentioned in the, um, and when I was talking about the telecom company, I went back to school and became a nurse. I've always been taking care of people. I've always been, had that compassion to take care of others. And so I went back to school to, to become a registered nurse. And when in that process, 
I was really sick. I mean, really, really sick, but no one would ever know it because I had what well, was really good at faking it. Uh-huh. And so um, one day I was meditating, had a download. I was already a nurse and doing all my holistic stuff with my patients in the emergency room and um, having and watching them have transformations to better health. But I was already a nurse, had this download, and I was given a succinct system of steps to do. And in nine months after following those steps, I was completely cured after suffering from seven, for 17 years. Now, what I realized as a healthcare professional, being a registered nurse, that what I had was I had an ulcer that began when I was a child that was a stress-related ulcer, uh-huh. and it progressively got worse. And by the time I was able to rectify my healing myself holistically and naturally, it was a bleeding ulcer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I was, like I said, I was sick all the, all the time. And so that's how I went from being that skinny little girl eating on that candy to being the holistic, fabulous nurse person I am today, because I had the experience of the, you know, the journey of the pain and suffering. I know how important it is to really take care of yourself. Your health and your well-being is your greatest asset. Without that, we cannot do anything. Definitely can't live the life of our dreams. Um, and I know what to do to, to help me feel better and to help others feel better as well, holistically and naturally. So I haven't suffered for, whoo, let me see, about 31 years. I haven't suffered any, anything other than having my babies and suffering labor pains. I haven't suffered anything and I'm not on any medications and I'm an amazement when I go to the doctor myself. Um, because they can't, for one, they can't believe how old I am. And two, all my, all my lab work comes in as if I'm like in my 20s still. And so I just say that's a gift. I'm here to share my wisdom and, um, and I'm really good at it. And it's what I do. That's awesome. So um, obviously your journey started then because you were ill which yes. is is usually we usually have to go down that road of pain and suffering before we figure out that it, we don't want to do that anymore exactly. so um so you did you turn to holistic because you were not having success with western medicine or so after so okay remember i started going to the doctor at eight so by the time right. i was about 11 i you know I'm, I'm 11 years old i am um in the seventh grade in seventh, seventh, seventh or eighth grade, I can't remember. Anyways, I, um, you know, I was tired of going to the doctor. I wouldn't take the prescriptions because they would just they were nasty. They, you know, made me feel funny. And so um, it was about that time when I was in junior high school where I just started. I just started um, trying to eat better food. So I thought if I ate more vegetables, I love vegetables. Um, you know, if I ate you know, chicken, more chicken, you know, just stuff like that. It was just stuff in my head um, that I would feel better. But the problem was it didn't matter what I ate because the damage was already done to my stomach lining, right? So it didn't matter what I ate. I could eat something one day and feel good and eat that same thing the next day and be in excruciating pain. So. Then I started incorporating other, you know, like the meditation and, and just other things, um, holistic practices that I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what they were. I was just doing it. I would read about it or see something on TV or whatever and, and try it. And it just, all of a sudden things just, you know, I started clicking. I started feeling better. 
So I think it was just a gradual process of, for me, trial and error. Uh -huh. Once I discovered what I was doing and once I became, um, you know, a nurse and all of that and realized I was doing holistic practices that were not Western medicine, nobody mm -hmm. didn't want to hear about it. Um, I knew I was onto something. And when I started doing stuff with my patients um, that were having heart attacks and having them do meditation, you know, as I walk them through meditation or deep breathing and watching their um, EKG changes or their cardiac monitor changes, I mm -hmm. knew I was onto something. Here's the big thing though. I really knew I was onto something when I would have patients come back to me in the middle of the night. You know, we would have conversations, I would have conversations with my patients all the time and share things with them that was working. When I had these people coming back to me in the middle of the night, because I worked 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. to tell me that what I shared with them made a tremendous difference in their life. Mm -hmm. They listened, their health improved. I might have told somebody to lose 10 pounds and their blood pressure would drop and they wouldn't need high blood pressure medication. They did that. They would come back and tell me this stuff. I knew I was on to something and I always knew that natural medicine was the way to go because whenever I indulged in it, whether it was herbs or essential oils or you know, drinking my herbal tea, which I used to get teased about um, growing up as a teen, um, I always felt better and the energetics around everything felt better. And when I work with my patients in a traditional hospital setting, doing just simple holistic modalities, I could see the light in them light up and I could see things change for the better for them. So it was just, I think, a God-given thing to happen at the right time, right moment for me to have all this knowledge and wisdom bestowed upon me. Um, but definitely, definitely was a journey. And I love sharing it. And I love, um, I love helping people and seeing people transform. It's, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I imagine, um, well, aside from being teased because you were drinking herbal tea, I imagine, did you sometimes run into difficulties with maybe um, people that you worked with because you were doing these kind of woo-woo things with... Um, and I say that like that. People on the on uh, that are listening to the podcast can't see that they're we're doing air quotes on woo woo. <laughs> um, but did you have difficulty with people um, not accepting what you were doing or or uh, not wanting you to do that with your patients? So here's the thing: I never shared it. Ah, <laughs> had I shared it because I worked for a big, very prominent um, healthcare facility. So mm -hmm. that is extremely prominent, right? So had I sh probably shared the information, it would have been dismayed. I don't know. My nurse manager was kind of into that kind of stuff at the time, but it definitely was, you know, this is the early, you know, this is the late 80s, early 90s. It definitely, nobody was talking about holistic anything. If you, you, they thought you were crazy. So I didn't share it. And when I would engage with my patients, I would be so matter of fact, be like, you know, you know what, while you're sitting there and I'm assessing them and talking to them, you know, say someone's having a heart attack and, you know, I'm getting, I'm starting their, I, their three IVs. As I'm talking to them and starting their IVs and working with them, I would say, hey, would you do me a favor? You know, you got that oxygen on you that I just put in. Let's, let's, you know, I want you to take some nice, good, deep breaths with the oxygen while it's on you. That's going to help bring more oxygen flow into your heart. Your heart right now is a little bit deprived of oxygen. So the more we can get in it, the better it's going to be. Maybe the better your prognosis would be. Stuff, simple stuff like that. <laughs> Aren't you, you know? sneaky? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, you know, like while they're sitting there and, you know, I'm watching them and 
know, they're kind of stabilized, waiting for the physician to come in or something. But like, you know, why don't you close your eyes? Let me walk you through something. I'm going to just do something. You, you can tell me how you feel. You can, you can open your eyes at any time. But while I got time, a little bit of time, let me just walk you through something. Let's see if it makes you feel a little bit better. And I do like a, just a simple, brief little, you know, visualization for them or a little meditation, incorporate some breathing exercise. And it was, it was amazing, you know, and they would be like, oh yeah, I feel better. Or my chest pressure is decreased or I don't have any chest pain or, you know, if it's an asthmatic, I can breathe e easier. Everything's opening up for me. Or, you know, if it was somebody that was to have an abdominal pain, it would distract their mind from, you know, be a little bit of a distractor from the pain and help ease the pain. And so it was all these little things that I was doing that was very subtle, wasn't blatant. Um, but it was very, very helpful. And then once they got comfortable with me, they would be like, oh, no, we want, where's Rochelle? We want Rochelle in here, you know, <laughs> asking me questions, you know, but it was really interesting. Um, and it, I used it, you know, I didn't do it on kids too much, um, generally because their parents are there, but right. sometimes that they were open. I just, you know, like I said, it was very subtle, you know, tell, you know, have the child focus on something or focus on counting my freckles. It's kind of like a meditative thing and, mm -hmm. um, to distract them. And, and it would work. It was just, it's just simple things. And when it came to like herbs and stuff like that, if they asked me, I would give the information. Um, but a lot of times I didn't want to be so enthusiastic that I forced my knowledge upon them. And then, you know, people back away because it's, it's not something they're used to. Well, you also don't want to take the risk that they're going to think you're prescribing it, which is definitely a no-no. So, exactly. Yeah, um, I was having some some really difficulty with my last pregnancy, and um, I was in the hospital and had gone through everything. They had discharged me, and I was on my way out the door, and I had the nurse stop me. And she kind of looked around on both sides of her shoulder, you know, and then she leaned in and whispered and told me, go home, do this herbal thing, and I'll see you back in a couple of hours. <laughs> so I went home and I did what she told me to do, and I was back in a couple of hours. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really sad that you have to be so secretive about things like that. But right now in our society, that's where you are. Yeah, so. you know, it has gotten better from 30 years ago. I mean, over the years, I have seen more and more physicians become open to you know, Western medicine is not the way of the world. And I'll tell anybody, Western medicine um, or medicine in America, we have a sick health care. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't have a preventative health care. We have a sick care thing. Yes, we yeah, we do. No preventative anything. And yeah. um, they're not about the cure. They're about the, the disease or illness because there's no money in the cure. And I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm saying it to be open, upfront, and honest. I've seen, I've had people in my family that have almost died due to mismanagement in um, some of these hospitals. And, and it's amazing to me, you know, because they just choose not to, or they're so busy that they just don't have the time to look at everything. And sometimes the most important things that you think you don't need to look at, that you neglect to look at, are the most detrimental to somebody's, you know, health and well-being. So right. a lot of more, a lot more physicians are more open, um, you know, more integrative, and that's a beautiful thing because, you know, back in the ancient days, there were no, you know, it was all natural medicine, and apparently those people lived really well. And all the, you know, pharmaceuticals are derivatives of some kind of plant, herb, something natural. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it is what it is, but it's very nice to see it opening up um, in the minds of 
our Western medicine physicians opening up and understanding that there's more things to just trying to prescribe stuff. You got to work on the mind, the body, and spirit. And um, all of those are, are important when you're working with healing people. Absolutely. I had the, the privilege of meeting Dr. Ken Vu, who is, uh, he was an internist. He's actually the director of one of the, I think, the internal medicine at one of the major hospitals. And he was sick, overweight, and on a whole bunch of medication. And he said, this is not the way to do it. So now he travels around teaching people how to do it the holistic way. So yeah, they are beginning to wake up and that's pretty wonderful. So how did you figure out about mindfulness? I mean, how, how did that come across your radar? Well, I told you I was that type <laughs> A child. <laughs> My mom <laughs> probably like, and yes, she was. But <laughs> definitely that type A uh, child. You know, I was first born, of course. So um, was uh, I was very competitive kind of, you guys kind of probably got a hint of that, very, <laughs> but really secretly competitive. So mm -hmm. it was, um, so I would never like tell people, oh, I'm going to whoop you. I'm going to, I'm going to kick, I'm going to win. I'm going to kick your butt, but I would never do that. But all in my mind, I'm thinking I need to win. I need to beat this person. I need to, you know, I need, I need to, I need to be in first, you know? So I had this secret competitiveness and I was an athlete. <laughs> Go figure. So. Um, so I would have uh, moments of, um, anger management issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's delicate. <laughs> yes, yes. Anger management issues, um, where I would just fly off the handle and, um, eventually it started backfiring Ooh. in a negative way. And someone, I'm going to say... I may have been about in the eighth grade and I had a teacher that um, was really special. His, he, he was my history teacher. He was my seventh grade history teacher and, and my eighth grade history teacher. And um, bless his heart, his name was Mr. Harry Moto. And he was very special. And he had just, just he was a little Japanese man. And he had this demeanor about him. But he just took a, I liked him and he, and he had a fondness for me. And he would always tell me, child, you need to cool your fire. And I'm ah, like, what the heck is he That's doing? where that phrase came from. Yeah. Okay. Child, you need to cool your fire. And so I'd be like, oh, Mr. Harry Moto, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, as, um, as I got to spend more time with him over the, you know, course of back then, junior high school was eighth, seventh and eighth grade. Right. Um, you know, he would always, you know, give me like little things to say, or he would say, when you catch yourself doing this, you know, just little things like that. And, and all of it basically was being mindful. When you find yourself getting, you know, angry, you know, why are you getting angry? Why, you know, how are you feeling in that moment in time? Pay, he would say, always pay attention to how you're feeling. Be mindful of how you're feeling, no matter whether you're happy or sad or angry. And I would hear this over and over. And then he'd give me these little tidbits of, you know, like cool your fire child or expand your vision or, you know, and so eventually it just kind of, it kind of led me to a mindfulness journey. So as a nurse, um, I had to do some continuing education units and I thought, well, you know, what the heck, let me, you know, I was already meditating and stuff. And so there was a class offered on mindfulness. It offered like three hours of continuing education units. And I, I thought, oh, what the heck, it'd be easy. I went in that class and actually loved it, but it took me back to seventh and eighth grade. 
because pretty much everything that was discussed in that class, I had heard from Mr. Harry Moto when I was 11, 12 years old and just laughing and taking some of it and using it. Um, and it was just like, oh my gosh, it just, it was like, I've been here before, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I, um, I didn't realize that I was walking in different footsteps. It, it was just amazing. And so that's kind of how the, the whole mindfulness kind of clicked. And now that is really wonderful. I, I wonder if you could remember anything that he taught you in history. No, but he changed your life by teaching you these mindfulness practices. I think that's wonderful. And, and what a legacy to leave behind because he changed your life. Yeah, so that's... It, it, it's funny when you ask me that, I'm like, you know, wow, I don't even really, I don't even know what history if it was. I know because <laughs> California history was in the fourth grade. I don't even know what history was in seventh and eighth grade. And I don't even know if it was called history. It may have been called social studies back then. You know how everything has changed. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> anything but I remember him because he has such a profound impact on me right. and you know and he was an older gentleman at that time so I'm sure he's gone by now smiling down and saying I knew that girl that was full of fire would eventually get it, you know, <laughs> I knew it. but it's just it, that's it's a beautiful memory and thank you for allowing me to share that because I, I really hadn't thought about that that's really wonderful I, I appreciate you sharing that because um, just you know, the, the impact that he had and the fact that you remember him. I imagine there are probably other teachers that you had around that age that you don't remember the teachers either. And so what was really important is, is teaching you to connect with yourself, with your own body and your own feelings and how to control your emotions and stuff. So, um, so are thought processes and mindfulness the same thing? So, no. Thought processes actually are uh, something that we have all the time. We have so many, what they say, millions of thoughts that occur each day with our head, right? Um, and, it, and our thought processes happen actually without us really thinking about it. Now, if you think about it, you have the power to control your thought at that moment in time, right? But they're just, go it's, like the, it's like the computer. Bits of information are just going in and we're processing it. And it may, you know, you may smell like fried rice cooking and think of the time you went to Tokyo or something. I, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? But right. the thought process just are just rambling. And, and when we take the moment to be mindful of our thought processes, that is when we're in the moment to control our thoughts. So our thoughts are the only thing that we really truly they say can control at that moment in time, but in order to be able to control them, you have to be mindful of them. And I'll give a quick example. How many times have you driven somewhere and it's a familiar route and you leave, you back out your garage, get, you know, go to the store, it's a familiar route and you realize, oh, dang, I got here already. Right. And you don't know what happened, right, on your drive. You, you yeah. have no idea, you, you have no idea. And then you, when you get to your destination, you become mindful. Hey, I got here already, but you're like, dang, I didn't even see, you know, I kind of can't even remember. Did I get stopped at the light? You know, that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Because we're caught up in the thought process that are just going on. You know, you might be driving, thinking about, okay, what am I going to cook for dinner? I'm going to the store. I want to make sure I get this, this, and this. You're not, you know, there's just all these thought processes. But the moment you arrive at your destination, 
you become mindful of the thought process, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, you have to stop, pay attention. I'm at the store. Okay. But where's my list? Right. And, and so, so I say mindful, mindfulness helps us to be appreciative of our thought processes. It helps us to control our thoughts. It kind of is like the moment where you have that, okay, I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to stop, take a deep breath. Now I'm in control. Now I want to think happy thoughts. So I'm going to think happy thoughts. Yes. The difference between being mindful and being unconscious. Yes. So thought processes are oftentimes unconscious, as you described the, the driving, because we are so familiar. If something happened and we needed to respond, then we would snap yeah. back into that. But we don't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you're talking about being mindful, then why do you use the word audacious? So, <coughs> so it goes back with the whole story. So in order for, I know audacious means um, generally bold and um, daring, right? Mm-hmm. But in order to be bold or daring, uh, uh, daring or audacious, you have to be mindful of the choice to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when I am being audacious is when I'm in that moment when someone, such as when I started my telecom company, told me that I, I'm not going to be successful. I'm not going to be successful. <clears throat> the thought that came to my mind was, yes, I am. I have to find a way for me to stand out and make myself so unforgettable that when people think of a telecommunications installation company, they're going to think of me first. Mm-hmm. And so my audaciousness was created from my mindfulness, the fact that I had to sit and think about the thought of what am I going to do to make myself stand out. So I would be audacious. One, I didn't, it didn't take much because I was a woman in a male-dominated industry. So mm-hmm. that, that was you know, kind of an oxymoron. Two, like I was 12. Okay, maybe by this time I'm looking like I'm 15 or 16. So that was something that stuck out. Three, I always, 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 um, I like to say dressed to the nines. And mm-hmm. I always wore bright, bold colors. So, and it was colors that people had told me I looked good in. So it was, uh, I would wear a red suit with a black shirt or a white suit um, with a red shirt or you know, wine colored shirt or, you know, really, um, I, I have a shoe fetish. So I would wear some, maybe some colorful shoes. I might have all black on and then my shoes would be the audacious, the bold, the bold aspect of me. Everything I did with regards to that was so that I would stand out mm-hmm. and people would see the boldness and the audaciousness and what I was doing, but it was all very calculated for me being mindful. So I say the two go together as you have to be mindful in order to step out and be bold. And if you want something bad enough, you're going to want to leave a lasting impression. And what better way to make a lasting impression to the think it out, thinking it out, calls your mindfulness into order and um, doing something that has people remember you in a positive manner. <laughs> you can go the other way too, but yeah. have people, you know, have something. So it's just, it, it they, it, 
it seems like it's an oxymoron to be audacious and mindful at the same time. But in actuality, they go together. You have to be mindful to create the audaciousness so that you stand out and be recognized and be remembered. Absolutely. We're going to take a small break. And when we come back, we'll have a continued conversation with Rochelle Marie Lawson, who's given us some really, really good tips. And um, your enthusiasm is just great, Rochelle. Thanks so much. So we'll be back in a minute. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Welcome back. This is Michelle Nagel with Roar to Win. And today we are interviewing Rochelle Marie Lawson, who is, um, who she talks about Be Audacious, Five Steps to Conquering Fear. So you're talking about audacious we're not talking about being in your face about it you were, you had mentioned you know how to do it gracefully and mindfully but what are what are most people afraid of and what why are they afraid to identify their fears when it's an easy thing to do so um, there are seven basic fears um, people are afraid to grow old they're afraid of criticism they're afraid of getting sick and having physical pain. They're afraid of losing their loved ones. They're afraid of losing their life. They're afraid of um, being in poverty, right? And so, um, oh my goodness, <laughs> just had a brain freeze. And so, <laughs> and so with regards to those, those ones I've outlined, they're underlying, I want to say there's an umbrella effect that underlies. So there's other fears that lie underneath those, right? Mm -hmm. Criticism. You don't want, you're afraid that someone to, someone to judge you. You don't want to be judged. You don't want to be right. You don't, you don't want to be classified as wrong. I'm sorry. You don't want to be classified as wrong. Um, you don't, you, you might be fearful. You're afraid of getting sick. Um, or afraid of having physical pain and with regards to that there's a there's a gamut of things that fall underneath that you might be afraid to change your diet because you're so used to eating this unhealthy food that you're not sure what's going to happen if you eat the how your body's going to react if you eat the good food um you may stay in a relationship that's not bad that falls under the loss of love because even though the relationship is not good it's better than being alone that person obviously must love you somehow if they're paying attention to you, whether it's negative attention or not, right? So there's all these different reasons why, I mean, all these different fears that people have conjure up in their mind. And the reason why people stay in it, because a lot of people are afraid 
of what is unknown to them. Mm-hmm. So they would rather stay in a situation that they know is not good for them, that they're fearful of, because they're afraid that if they leave the situation, they can't predict what the outcome will be. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I mentioned staying in a relationship where, um, you know, it's not a good relationship. It's sometimes people think it's easier to stay in the relationship that's not good because I can do these different things where we won't argue or he won't hit me or she won't hit me or whatever the case may be. Right. Or I won't be demeaned or whatever the case may be. I can do these different things to curtail that. But the whole time the person's not happy and they're on pins and needles. Now, Mm -hmm. if they say, Oh, if I leave, well, you know, who's going to love me. I'm not going to have love from anybody, even though what they're getting is net is not quote unquote love. Right. I'm Mm -hmm. going to be by myself. You know, I don't want to be by myself. Everybody's coupled up. I don't want to be by myself. It, it, there's all these crazy reasons that people come up with why they stay in things that are not good for them. People that eat bad food. Now, you know, we all know we have people, friends, family that we know doggone well, they should not be eating that double cheeseburger <laughs> with five slices of bacon, half a pound of cheese, you know, with the, right. with the extra large French fries when they got high blood pressure, high cholesterol, pre-diabetic or diabetic, right? With the extra large Diet Coke, right? Right, yes. But it's something they're comfortable with. So if you go to take that person and say, you know what, you have these health conditions, you really should be doing this, eating this food here. They're fearful of it because for one, they don't know how it's going to react to their body. Two, they're not going to even know if they like it. Three, what happens if they start to feel better? Then they won't, you know, what happens? then they won't, you know, have that attention they might be getting or, you know, they may have to buy new clothes or someone might, someone might think something negatively of them and start judging them or criticizing them because now they're choosing to eat healthier. There's a whole gamut of things. And so I'm saying it's enough of that, enough of that. The most sacred person on the earth is you. And if you don't take care of yourself, then you can't be a hundred percent for those that you love and care about. Right. If you're living in a fear-based mentality, whether you choose to admit it or not, the energy you're sending out to everyone around you is this negative, heavy, fear-based energy. Right. And heavy energy is the first energy that people pick up. So even though that you may be with someone and they pick up this energy from you and then you go on and have a good time, they're still left with the residual of this heavy energy that you have, that you carry around like, you know, Pigpen and Charlie Brown, like this little cloud. Mm-hmm. They're still stuck with the remnants of that because it's so heavy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm telling people, it's time to stop doing that. Be audacious, be bold, do something you haven't done. Try a food you haven't eaten before. You never know. You may like it. Yeah, you may actually like it. Go out by yourself or, you know, ask questions of your, people are even afraid to ask questions of their doctor about their own medical conditions. Right. Why? Why is that? Because they may not want to hear the answer. Exactly, right? So they're more comfortable. If I don't hear, I don't see, then I won't experience any evil, so to speak. You know, hear no evil, see no evil, right? Right. 
No, be audacious. If that means being bold and saying, hold up, doctor, wait a minute. Before you go, I have these questions I need you to answer. Do right. that. Because again, you are the most important person in the world. And you should not ever be fearful of anything. Not unless it absolutely warrants it. Now, there are times you need to be fearful when you're in a fight or flight situation. Somebody's chasing you and you need to haul tail, then yeah, okay, be fearful, but you're haul, but get in that fight situation and get the haul and tail, right? right? But don't stand like the deer in the headlights and wait for the, the back truck to hit you because eventually that's what's going to happen. And your life will take a downward spiral and your mental, physical, emotional, and um, all your well-being, it'll begin to take a toll. Yeah, I, I had a couple of stories that came to mind. I was in a grocery store and a husband asked his wife, um, how about if you try this supplement because I've been studying about it and I believe that it will really do you some good. And she picked it up and she looked at it and she said, oh, I would never take anything without asking my doctor first. And I, I had to you know, like clap my hand over my mouth because I almost said, oh, do you ask him what kind of you know meals you're going to have? Do you, do you ask him if it's okay for you to get dressed? You know, it just... We, exactly. we give so much power over our own health to everybody else. Exactly. And, and that's a really difficult thing. And the other thing was there was a woman that I knew that had a disease and um, I had suggested that she try some alternative kind of healing. And she said, oh, no, no, I will never, ever get over this illness. I'm going to have this illness until the day I die. It's going to kill me. And, and I thought, why would you embrace that? And and then I began to watch her because I, I saw her a lot. She got so much um, praise because she was so patient and so good in, in the face of this ad adversity. And, and so I realized that she would never get well because if she did, her philandering husband, who now <laughs> paid tremendous attention to her, would no longer pay attention to her. Right. And so, so the gain of her staying ill until it actually did kill her was greater than good health. You know, it, it's, I, I've seen it. I've seen people bring on illness because of the attention it brings to them. And they feel that sometimes, and, and it, I'm saying, and I'm not being negative. It's just a fact of reality. Mm -hmm. Like you said, this lady here, she doesn't, she doesn't want to get well because if she does she's fearful of getting well because if she does she's got to face a whole gamut of things that she, right now she doesn't have to deal with right right as long as she's sick quote unquote people are not going to bestow all this stuff upon her that she needs to be seeing and that's happening in front of her face so right. she can just walk around with blinders feel like she's protecting herself in this bubble of i'm sick mm -hmm. You know, and again, predicting what the outcome is. And when you stay in that kind of mindset, the only outcome is, is eventually death. We all have to die, but you know, who wants to live like that? You know, yeah. who, really, who really, really wants to live like that? It's, and I laugh when you said, oh, I would never take this without asking my doctor first. But I bet you that same person doesn't ask her doctor what the side effects of each medication she's taking, I why bet. she's taking two or three high blood pressure medications and cholesterol medication. She, I guarantee you, she's the type of person that if the doctor prescribes it, she's going to take it heck or high water, even if she believes it's going to work for her or she needs it or not. 
because a doctor gave it to her, by George, it's got to be the right thing to do. And yeah. she's probably still sick. <laughs> yeah, if she's still alive, yeah. So, um, so we have a lot of fears that we carry with us. What specifically do you see as fears that keep us from going after our dreams? Um, fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, do you ever find that sometimes people are actually afraid that they might be successful too? And then what? Yeah. You know, I I see that people um, say they want to be successful and, um, but then they self-sabotage themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, it's kind of very interesting to see um, because when I talk, well, it's an interesting thing to see because if you want to be successful, in my mind, okay, you're talking to the bold, audacious girl, right? In my mind, if you want to be successful, well, it's just right there. Just, you know, put your GPS on success and go do it, right? Mm-hmm. That's in my mind. But there are people like, well, you know, I make $30,000 a year now if I'm successful with doing whatever and I make $90,000 oh, then, you know, I'll have cousin Mary and John and, you know, I'll have to help them. And, you know, right now I don't have to help anybody, but if I start making more money, then I've got to help more people. And then there's more taxes and more bills and, you know, and it's just, it's like, well, why don't you get there first and then see, (laughs) you know know what I mean? Get there first and then see, or, you know, if I'm successful, I'm going to have to spend more time on the road with my business or I'm away from my family or I'm not going to be able to have as much free time as I have now, even though I'm, you know, can barely make ends meet, whatever the case may be. Um, people do self-sabotage their success. And it's all because they're fearful of what happens if I get successful, then what? How I'll have a whole new set of problems and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to deal with them. I'm comfortable with the problems I have now, but I'm not sure if I'm successful I'll be comfortable or able to handle the problems that may come come upon me once I'm successful. Yeah, exactly. So um, how is there a process that allows us to conquer our fears? There is. There surely is. First of all, you have to, first of all, recognize that you are having some fearful thoughts. Okay. Most of us don't even recognize it until we've already got the fight or flight thing kicked in. But first of all, is recognizing that you've got some fearful thoughts, whether it's, you know, fearful of driving that little Lamborghini, you know, <laughs> or that Porsche that you, you know, fearful of that new Porsche, your friend is like, oh, go take it for a test drive. And you're like, oh, I don't know, girl. I don't, you know, I don't know if I, you know, fearful of that, right? Right. Or just fearful of starting a new exercise program. You have to recognize it because with anything, if you do not recognize it, then it's not real and you'll keep circumventing it as it rises to the surface. Mm-hmm. So you have to recognize it. it's kind of like acid reflux. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that is quite a comparison. Right? Okay. Good visualization though, right? <laughs> yep. you don't re- any of you guys that have acid reflux, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't recognize acid reflux and you keep trying to do whatever it is that's causing it to well up the little volcano to well up, guess what? Eventually it's going to well up enough to get your attention. Once you recognize, Oh, I got acid reflux and you can take ginger. I'm using my natural stuff. You can take some ginger or pick some ginger tea or some peppermint or something like that. That's going to calm that down. 
then you become in control. When you're operating in fear-based, you're not in control. Who's in control is that F-E-A-R inside your head. And so um, the first step is recognizing that you have fear. And mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing. Just recognize, acknowledging it. The next thing is to, is to become mindful of it. Okay, you recognize, okay, I'm a little fearful that, you know, I've got to get on this motorcycle and I don't have a helmet or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm mindful of the fact that I'm fearful. So the mindfulness allows you to kick the thought process in as to what you're going to do next. You're not going to run, hide, or, you know, you're not going to flight and you're not going to flee, so to speak. But it allows you to get your thoughts together as to what steps you need to take to proceed forward so that you get out of feeling fearful. Well, on the motorcycle, go get a helmet. <laughs> right, for sure, right? Recognition, acknowledging it, um, becoming mindful of it. And then really just um, taking a step back before proceeding forward and just gathering your wits. Sometimes we, um, when we're operating in a fear-based, we become very re reactionary. And when you, when you take that step back, You've got the mindfulness going on. You've got the recognition going on. When you take that step back, you're able to, I want to say, survey what's out in front of you. And you're able to make better decisions um, and become in a more proactive state or proactive mental state versus a reactionary state. Mm -hmm. When you're in a proactive state, you have more power, more control over the outcome. When you're reactionary, you have absolutely no control over the outcome. So, yeah. <clears throat> so those are some things that you can um, begin to do to uh, help you move through um, a fear-based state and conquering your fear. Of course, I always say just do it, but there are <laughs> other processes, you know, that go along with. But those are some real simple and easy things people can do if they find themselves operating in fear or fear rises to the surface for them. Yeah. And first of all, the first thing that they do is just take the time to just breathe deeply and um, ask their heart. I mean, people have a tendency to analyze everything. And sometimes the action that you need to take is not logical. And it, it needs to come from your heart, from your body to tell you what it is that you want or what's best for you. So, um so do you have any way for our listeners to get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more about what you do? Of course. So there's many ways. And I like to share with the listeners, if any of you guys, um, Dales, out there listening, um, if I sparked some, something within you when it came to the word F-E-A-R, I'm going to change the acronym. I'm going to give you an acronym. So this will help you as well so anytime you have this fear you recognize it it's well enough in you or you're like okay i'm being mindful i've got it now what i'm going to do you can take the acronym for f-e-a-r freedom every day to allow yourself to relax and just like you were saying michelle when you take those deep breaths which is another aspect of taking that step back you're able to get more oxygen going to flow into your brain through your blood system everything is getting revitalized by that that oxygen flowing but also, it allows you to make better decisions. And if any of you all need help with that, um, definitely reach out to communicate with me. You can communicate with me um, in numerous ways. I'm on Facebook. I have a group called the U Factor Tribe that you can join. 
and it's all about um, wellness, wisdom, and wealth, helping you to accelerate those areas. People come in, they pop in, they get information, they give information. Um, definitely you can tap into that. I'm on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Rochelle Lawson or Rochelle Marie Lawson, you can find me. Um, also, you can <clears throat> check out my um, website at um, blissfullivingthenumber4u.com. It's under, I would say, revitalization, um, but you can definitely check us out there. And lastly, you can check me out at Rochelle, R-O-C-H-E-L-E, Lawson.com. Um, that site is, is all about me. Well, not really all about me, but it's about me. And you can definitely get in contact with me there. You can always email me and um, you can always tune into my podcast as well. Awesome. And what is the name of your podcast? My podcast is Blissful Living. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for spending this time with us, Rochelle. I really appreciate it. And I know that our listeners um, can get a, a really great deal of benefit out of putting those things that you talked into practice. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me, Rochelle. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us today as we learned happiness hacks, relationship tools, how to refuel our resilience batteries and perfect our roar. Resilience, optimism, accountability, and resourcefulness. Roar to win. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This is the EWN Podcast Network.